Hey everyone, Reese here, and welcome to another episode of WSL Pure One Ocean. This is episode 28. Great. Um, I hope this finds you doing as well as one can be these days. It's it's weird to it's weird to feel like things are moving on or going back to business as usual. I have to admit, and um, yeah, it's just still hectic times, and and my heart is still really hurting, and I'm sure a lot a lot of people out there are still hurting over everything that's going on. Um, and you know, reflecting back on that time, looking back, um, there's there's one post that stuck out to us a couple weeks ago, a little over two weeks ago. There was a, a an Instagram post um, that scrolled into my view that said "Environmentalists for Black Lives Matter," and the preceding images in that gallery explained intersectional environmentalism. And you may have seen it; um, it really resonated within the environmental movement because it really caused us all to to reflect on our. Uh, interaction with race um, as we saw what was happening over the murder of George Floyd and so many others. And uh, before long, everyone was sharing it. And, you know, while I've had, I've known of the term intersectionality for a while um, and I've heard it used in and around the climate movement, I'd never seen it packaged so neatly and defined so clearly as it was in this post. Um, And I really think that that's, that's why it resonated so well. And we're lucky that today we have with us Leah Thomas, who created that post and has now gone on to take that into a full-fledged movement to broaden the reach of intersectional environmentalism. And she's going to explain why environmentalists need to reflect on intersectionality and why we need to work to be actively anti-racist. It's a really important conversation for us all to be having right now, and uh, I'm very excited to have Leah Thomas with us here today. Without further ado, here's Leah. Leah, so good to have you on the show. Thanks for making time to be here. I imagine that you're very, very busy these days. A little bit, but I'm super excited to be here. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, to start off, uh, how do you identify yourself? I, I don't like to um, do bios for people. You know, I, I kind of want yeah. people to, uh, to <laughs> introduce themselves however they prefer to be introduced because a title is not just who you are. I think one of the raddest things about being a writer or communications person is you can just like make up words and that's what I've been doing lately. So I like to call myself an intersectional environmental activist and also an eco communicator, which is just a really fancy way of saying that I think that the planet and people should be protected. And I like to talk a lot and I like to to write a lot. You like to talk a lot. That's perfect because you're on a podcast and <laughs> this is the, the right place for you. Um, so I think that's I think that's fantastic. And you've been doing a lot of podcasts lately. I mean, you were on the Yikes podcast. I think you're on Water People, um, mm-hmm. probably some more that you're doing. You did a live with Alex Honnold and with Adrian from Lonely Whale. So you've, you've, you've been busy. Yeah, I've been it's it's just been really cool. I think working at Patagonia probably exposed me to a lot of different industries. So kind of I always call myself like surf adjacent or climbing adjacent because I don't really do a lot of these activities, but a lot of my friends and coworkers do. So I've been um, I feel really lucky to kind of have a foot in a lot of these different places. So it's been it's been really awesome being able to talk with so many different people. Very cool. And, you know, that's the reason that we are talking today is because uh, a little over two weeks ago, you created a, a post, um, you know, that basically is an Instagram post 
that said, uh, you know, I'll just pull it up. Actually, um, we'll throw it right up here for people who are watching to see. Um, it said environmentalists for black lives matter, uh, repeated well-designed, uh, by the way. <laughs> and then, thank you. That's Canva right there. <laughs> and you said you're not technical, you're not tech savvy, but here you are, you know, um, so it says environmentalists for Black Lives Matter, and you then go on to define what is intersectional environmentalism, and then uh, you have an intersectional environmentalist pledge. And I d this post, at least for me, reverberated just kind of around my corner of the internet, right? I, I saw people in the surf industry, um, surfers, I saw... Um, you know, uh, ocean nonprofits and surf enviro nonprofits, everyone was resharing this post. And of course, I mean, this is happening as a result of the George Floyd murder or lynching um, and all of the systemic oppression and this reaction to it, which is very necessary. But you created this post and it really resonated. And I just felt like you, you have everyone's attention and what a great opportunity to lean into intersectional environmentalism and learn more about what you're trying to do with this post and, and what you're doing now. So do you want to maybe start by defining intersectionality and then define yeah. intersectional environmentalism? Cause I think we need to start with that first word. Yeah. So I love the term intersectionality and I first learned about it when I was in college because there's something called intersectional feminism, which is very similar to, well, I, I guess I'll get into that a little bit further, but it was also defined by a really amazing black activist who saw herself in a lot of feminist circles, but didn't feel like people were also advocating for Black lives. And when she would mention her identity as a Black woman in context to feminism, she would get kind of silenced by people who would say like, well, all women matter. And she would want to say something like, well, you know, I'm Black and it's not a bad thing. And when they were talking about statistics and how black women might earn a certain amount to every white woman's dollar um, or indigenous women or Latinx women might not earn the same amount. Um, there's those complexities which might feel kind of awkward and uncomfortable um, for people who are within a movement because they might already feel like they're fighting one thing, which is sexism, and might not see why they also have to add on to that and fight against racism. So she defined that term. I wish I knew her name. It's going to come to me right after this, but she's incredible. Kimberly and Crenshaw, right? Yes. Kimberly. I did a little homework before. I can't say yes. that I knew that off the top of my head. I did some homework a while ago and it stuck with me because I, I don't, I don't want to try and seem like I, you know, um, I don't know. I don't, like, I don't know all the terminology. I'm still learning here too. Um, so anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, yeah. So Kimberly, so she defined the term intersectionality. And I just had a realization that if my feminism is intersectional, my environmentalism should be too. And I wrote about intersectional environmentalism for the first time about a year ago in a piece on environmental justice for the good trade. And since then, I haven't really seen a concrete definition for what it meant. Like I've seen people use the term like I want my I want my environmentalism to be intersectional, but I had never seen a definition that was widely circulated or kind of accepted by the environmental community. So I decided to just define it because it's my Instagram and I wanted to put what it meant to me. And I think in many ways, People call it subtweeting on Twitter. So when you are typing something to someone in particular, but you don't at them or say like, hey, John, this goes to you, but it's just really kind of passive aggressive. <laughs> so I wouldn't say it was that, but I wanted to define it 
so I could indirectly tell the environmental community what I would love for them to do. And that's step up for black people and all, you know, people of color. And I wanted them to know that as an environmentalist advocating for both people and the planet, I feel are key to being environmentalists. So intersectional environmentalism is a type of environmentalism that advocates for the protection of both people and the planet and doesn't silence or minimize the way that race and culture can impact who experiences environmental injustice. Does it Does it then, uh, you say it doesn't silence those people, but does it in some mm-hmm. cases even amplify to try to balance out yes. the injustices that have been exacted upon them for centuries? Exactly. I think we have had these incredible environmental movements of the 60s and the 70s and the one that kind of happened in 2019 and early 2020, the Youth Climate March, and they've been really great, but I think maybe why don't we just give it a try and allow people of color to be at the forefront? Because it's something that we haven't really tried before, so I mean, why not? And also because I think a lot of specifically indigenous wisdom is very implemented into environmentalism as a whole and just having a better relationship with the land. So we might as well, for the sake of the planet and people, amplify those voices and allow them to have a place at the front, at the forefront of the movement. Um, So not just be in it, but also amplify it even more. Yeah, I I mean, I I think that's spot on. And I think would you say that there's a, a, or I guess one could say there's a case to be made that the current system of white male patriarchy isn't really doing a great job for the planet? Uh. No, I mean, I wasn't going to say it, but if you want to say it, you know, say it. It's true. Uh, no, listen, shake I, things up a little bit. I want you to be honest and open here. So you should say what's on your mind. Um, but, you know, I'll say it. You know, we have a system of capitalism and resource extraction and the way we look at the planet as a resource and even refer to people as human resources, um, you know, historically going back centuries that has um, led us to the system that we're in now. And, um, you know, that is not sustainable for people or planet. And there have been infinite injustices uh, to people and planet. So it is high time that we thought about a new system. And, you know, as I think about just some of the content I've been consuming lately and trying to, you know, know and understand and some of the work that we're trying to do, you know, it's very clear that the people who have done the least to screw up the planet are going to be affected the most and first. And so I'm specifically thinking of, um, you know, the developing world and countries that have small carbon footprints relative to USA, China, brick, you know, the, the usual countries, um, you know, they're going to be, they're already feeling the effects of drought, of flood, of famine, of, in, uh, climate anomalies and, in, you know, intense weather events. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's worth calling out. I'll call it out. And, um, I think we all need to recognize that and then say, okay, well, what better systems can we create and what, what modes will, will get us to those better systems. And I think what you've hit on thinking about race, gender, class, that intersectionality is maybe what will get us there, uh, or at least is one one thing that we need to put at the forefront of our thinking. Does that make sense? I hope so. I really do. And that's something that really sticks out to me too, what you kind of touched on. So small island nations, 
right. that really are not contributing to the climate crisis in any way, shape or form and how there's going to be displacement of so many people and also a refugee crisis alongside um, the climate crisis and who's responsible. I think the United States and a lot of these other countries are respons- responsible for what's to come. And it makes me really sad that so many people who are not contributing really to the climate crisis are going to face the impacts first and maybe not even have a country to in- inhabit. Yeah, I mean, you're speaking our language in the surfing world. You know, many of us love to go chase waves in these island nations. Um, you know, I recently did hear a phrase, though, to flip it. Um, I was speaking to... Uh, a young woman in the in the Maldives who uh, does coral research and is a surfer, and she's like, you know, we're not a small island nation; we're a big ocean country mm-hmm. or a big ocean territory. I love that, you know, because the, I'm going to start saying that. Exactly, they're big ocean countries. So um, last week we had uh, um, some guests on from Costa Rica, and Costa Rica is eight percent land, but of their overall territory, it's ninety two percent ocean and water. So they're they're like, no, we're a big ocean country, and there are a bunch of uh, <laughs> island nations that are similar with their exclusive economic zones. Um, but you're speaking our language because we, we go to these places to go surf and we realize that sea level rise is affecting those places and um, very likely mm-hmm. in our lifetime will dramatically affect those places and the people who live there and, you know, have the tiniest carbon footprint relative to what we've done here, um, you know, don't deserve to be displaced and become climate migrants. Um, and again, a lot of those communities are black and brown and people of color. And so it's important that we recognize that in the plans that we make at the UN level, et cetera. So. Um, I guess, you know, going back to intersectional environmentalism, because I, w- I want to hit this, like, I feel like everyone saw your post and people can reshare. And again, there's a lot of sort of people just kind of quick to share stuff on social media and feel like they've done yeah. their job, but there's a lot of work to be done here. Right. And when we need to understand what these things mean and not use these terms lightly and, um, actually, you know, bring them with us every day, uh, going forward. Yeah. So let's let's dig in a little bit more you're now creating the intersectional environmentalist and what is it what is it what is is this thing that you're you've built and was this part of your plan or was it just kind of like no (laughs) because it's been quick it's only been a couple weeks so um i'll pull that for anybody watching at home um but tell us about it yeah so it's really funny so when that post went viral i guess is what people call it um, my dad in Missouri, actually, he's pretty old school. And he was like, Leah, I bought, I bought a bunch of domain names that you're probably going to need. And I was like, dad, <laughs> I'm not going to need intersectional environmentalists. Like, ugh, what are you doing? So, but then about a week later, I'm on the phone with some eco activists and we're like, you know what? We need to find one metrics to be able to hold companies and organizations responsible because we have a lot of companies that are saying we want to sign up to be certified as intersectional environmentalist companies or partners and we want it to be more than just like a social share so that's something that we're develop we're developing um as a part of this platform a way to have accountability metrics for these organizations that want to partner with us so we can help them change to become more intersectional organizations. And then the other part of it is kind of community-based and collected um, resources. So we've launched with, I think it's probably six, five or six issue areas where people can click on each community and learn more about what environmentalism might mean through the lens of that particular community. And that's been really fun. And we're also going to expand to include 
more communities and also topics like food justice, veganism, sustainable fashion. Um, and what we want to do with this resource is, since I define this term, I kind of feel a sense of responsibility to create the next step for people to actually practice intersectional environmentalism. So as they go to each community page, they'll find resources, art, organizations to support, peer-reviewed literature, personal essays, and a lot of different things. Um, so they can get a better understanding of different communities, um, how to support, and their connection with nature in general. This is fantastic. I mean, it's, it's already in just a short amount of time, a great resource because I feel like I'm trying to keep track of things. And there was that Google doc that went around and it was like, Hey, white people, here's how to be an anti-racist. <laughs> like, here's your lesson guide for the next, you know, five years. And there's just been so much, which is fantastic. Um, but it is nice to see it all collected in one place under the environmental lens. And then you also have the Instagram uh, account. Mm -hmm. So I imagine if people follow that, then they're able to kind of, you know, hear what's new and be updated. Because I feel like the web has changed in such a way that we don't go to destinations as much anymore. And it's so yeah. much comes to us through our, our who we're following on our on our social media platform. So it's super important to have, you know, those handles as well and be reaching people. Mm -hmm. Are you on TikTok as well or just Instagram? I'm on TikTok and I actually had like a weird viral moment on TikTok right before this happened. It oh, was wow. just like a video of me as a kid. Um, I was at some amusement park and some characters were like touching my hair and I was really young and I basically just like slapped their hands out of my hair and my parents showed me this little home video and I post it's on my Instagram too. But yeah, I do have a TikTok long story short and also the Instagram. I'm really excited for that to grow. I think it's been up for maybe four days and we have about 12,000 followers wow. um, and over 300 volunteers that want to help build this platform and wow. over 100 companies that want to partner with us in some way. So we're trying to work as fast as we can to make this a real community. But just to give some insights in what we're going to be offering, we have like a council of environmental mm -hmm. activists that help build this website and we're going to be launching one-on-one -on -one mentorship sessions with all of us for kind of younger environmental activists so we can just give them tips learn about the work that they're doing so that's something um, that we're going to do and then in addition to that we're also exploring the possibility of having some kind of grant program so we want to be able to fund organizations and activists that we deem as practicing intersectional environmentalism so we're going to have some sort of grant for three to five people or organizations probably by August. Um, so we've just gotten so much support from people and I'm just really excited to be able to kind of give back and help this, I don't know what to call it. It's not a philosophy, but a type of environmentalism kind of flourish a little bit. That's fantastic. And so to our to our friends in the surf industry who are listening, because I know that there are some out there at various surf brands who listen, uh, you now have homework to do. Go to Intersectional Environmentalist and get on <laughs> there and sign up for um, some mentorship and to, and to learn. Um, it's really cool. I, I think, you know, congrats to you for turning what was, you know, this this post, your way of expressing yourself in that moment into a real movement. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes. Did you have an idea when you were, you know, creating it that it would go anywhere, that it would resonate the way that it did? No, absolutely not. I honestly thought that people would unfriend me. I know that sounds really silly, but I thought people might unfollow me. I had no idea that this would kind of pick up steam in this way because I made it maybe in about 15 minutes and then I have 
like no graphic design experience. So I was just on Canva. I have a couple fonts that someone picked out for me and a couple color codes. And I just put it together really quickly. I was in bed kind of halfway under my covers, like trying to type this thing out. There was a ton of typos and I just ran it by two of my friends, Amanda and Abby, they work at Patagonia. And, um, yeah, and I just posted it and I, I couldn't have expected this, but I also previously worked in PR and communication. So I learned how to utilize a moment and I just really wanted to as quickly as possible make this a living, breathing platform so it could become a movement and I didn't want it to just end at that one post. So, so there's two things in there that are actually really interesting to me. One, you mentioned that you thought people would unfriend you. And that in and of itself, correct me if I'm wrong here, is a form of the white supremacy and and the racism inherent Mm -hmm. in the system, which is for you to identify uh, and put race forward. It's something that systemic oppression doesn't like or appreciate. Is that correct? I mean, you you felt a fear for speaking out about who you are. And that to me is terrible. Absolutely. Because at this point, I had nothing to lose. I mean, I was unemployed at the time, just doing freelance work fully. Um, My Instagram was doing okay in terms of my following, but my engagement was super low. So I felt like I didn't have much to lose. But I think, yeah, that echoes a bigger issue. I've been in environmental spaces for a long time. Like I was- You have a degree from Chapman, right? You Mm -hmm. have a degree in this? Yeah, I have a degree in environmental science and policy. I interned at um, two different national park sites and have worked for like Uh, Patagonia and other environmental organizations. And from that experience, I mean, no no one in particular, but I've been kind of silenced a lot in the environmental community. So I didn't have a lot of hope. And when I say silencing, it's never like this. Environmentalists are nice people, generally speaking. So it's never like people saying like, Leah, shut up. You're wrong. It's more of a people, people say, oh, this can wait, or, you know, I don't really see the connection of this and this, or, you know, we don't want to lose money by speaking about this. So I just gotten those sorts of reactions for so long. That's what I was expecting. Um, And to see it pick up in this way, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me. I think it's really cool. But I also want to, again, have those accountability measurements to be able to challenge some of these organizations that want to align with the work that I'm doing and say, again, this is more than just a post. But yeah, to answer your question, that fear, it does definitely come from white supremacy and being kind of silenced even in environmental circles. And I've experienced that all throughout my career in environmentalism. Yeah. And I mean, you're probably in a lot of, even if there isn't someone actively silencing you, the fact that you mm-hmm. are probably often the only in the yeah. rooms that you're in, it, 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 it quiets you, right? When you're the only mm-hmm. one and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to cause that stir or whatever it is, or you don't want, you know, it's our own, it's our own white fragility. Yeah. That is mm-hmm. like, we cannot talk about white people cannot talk about race. Cause it's like, Whoa, I'm not a racist. Whoa, whoa, whoa <laughs> why are you bringing that race stuff in here? You know? Um, and yeah. That, that's a form of silence, which is really, awful and is the work that we need to do to fix it uh (laughs) that's white people to fix it it's not on you um now Mm -hmm. the second thing in in what you said is that you mentioned that you do have experience in pr and that you saw a moment that Mm -hmm. you you know there was a glimmer of like hey there's there's something in here if i can hit the right message and i and i want to take advantage of that and i think 
also listening to you on the Yikes podcast and just hearing the way you've spoken about it so far is that I do think you've been savvy in the way that you're building this, you know, so that it it does feel inviting and welcoming to your average environmentalist who's like, well, yeah, sure, I, I want to be a part of that. And um, that intention, I think, is really important, you know, and, and you've spoken about the intentionality of the words that you're choosing and why you're trying to do this. And so maybe <laughs> you could speak to that, of that, like, clear intention of going, hey, there's something here, because you, you've clearly struck a chord. Yeah, I think so. I had a similar moment, not as large in scale, but um, when I was graduating college, I wrote uh, a think piece about my private school back home in St. Louis that I went to that had a little moment of viral pickup. Mm -hmm. And it was also about racism and kind of what we were talking about earlier that like casual almost racism that's not super overt and isn't someone saying a slur but it just kind of exists through a system and silences mm -hmm. people so I wrote a piece about my previous private school had a similar thing happen and I think I just was not ready for that wasn't ready for it didn't want the press attention I just wanted to write it and put it away and I just was very scared to speak on it further and I think that taught me a lot over the next, I guess, what, maybe five years that it's been or four years since that happened. Um, I need, I think it was, I don't know, it, it just worked out so perfectly that that happened. I wasn't ready, was very intimidated by press pickup. Then I happened to get a job on a PR team where I'm dealing with like answering a ton of emails, answering a ton of calls looking at analytics for campaigns and then I'm no longer overwhelmed by it. And then when I leave that position, all of a sudden this happens. And I mean, the timing couldn't have been more perfect because that training that I had at Patagonia and PR made me realize like, okay, this is a moment. People are really excited about this. I don't want this to go away. So I want to do everything that I can to be able to continue this moment and just build a very strong base and strong platform to begin with. Um, so I don't know if that really answered your question too much, but I think my past moments of almost viralness online and also working in PR just kind of taught me like I need to act quickly yeah, and yeah, do this. Smart. I mean, it's smart. And, and now you, you know, you have a rocket ship taking off, which is really exciting. Um, can you speak to, I mean, you've touched on a little bit, but are there, are there maybe any examples of where, you know, sort of your, your intersections and identities have informed your work or not? And or maybe even like a, an example that you could kind of highlight or illustrate that might be helpful for people listening? Yeah, I think, hmm. so I, I talk about this a lot, but I think it's really important. And I also want people to know his name, Mike Brown. Um, so I grew up in St. Louis, right. Missouri, not too far from Ferguson, Missouri. And when I was actually trying to figure out what I wanted to change my major to while I was home from college on summer break, I decided to change my major to environmental science. A couple days later, there was a police shooting of an unarmed black teenager, Mike Brown, about 10 minutes away from my house. It was the most traumatizing thing I've ever experienced and things were catching on fire. There was a lack of communication. Buildings were burning to the ground. And then a couple days later, I have to go back to California. And that's when I start taking my first environmental science classes within a 10 day window of my town burning to the ground and a teenager who was only a couple circles of friends away from me um, being taken way too early from this earth in a way that I feel is entirely unjust. So while I was sitting 
I almost, I honestly almost flunked out of school because it was so hard to be in these environmental science classes and chemistry classes and learn about the environment and how we need to preserve it and protect it while my sister was getting tear gassed and people are drowning in the smoke of the chaos. So when I was thinking about people breathing clean air and the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, I just had this moment of thinking, for who? Who is this clean air for? Who is this clean water for? Because clearly it's not my community back home. And I'm in Orange County over here with the best air, incredible water. I can jump in the ocean. I can go on a hike. I can process this trauma. But what about people from communities like mine? So the more I learned the data and the science that, in fact, black and brown communities are disproportionately exposed to environmental hazards and poor air quality and poor water quality, it just it just lit a fire in my soul and I just couldn't separate my identity from my environmentalism because I realized like the same systems of oppression are at play here. It's not a coincidence that black and brown communities are often exposed to police violence at higher rates and also exposed to environmental injustices. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that was just the moment where because it was such a traumatic event And then when I began my studies as an environmental science person, I just couldn't separate the two. And I Mm -hmm. think that also helped environmentalism really just imprint in my mind and in my soul as something that I want to do because it helped me heal. And I wanted other people to be able to heal and not only heal, but thrive and have a shot at life. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine that experience and having that happen so close to your hometown and then you know the the dissonance of then heading back to orange county of all places mm-hmm. <laughs> you know um mm-hmm. can you maybe highlight a couple more of the you know the connections between social justice and climate justice and and you know what are what are those other ways in which uh black and brown communities are affected so we are all um have made our eyes wide open if not now then geez i don't know when that um you know the police brutality is a, a real problem, but yeah. um, what are the other environmental examples? I think some people can think of, you know, the mm-hmm. water in Flint, Michigan, but maybe you could highlight a few others. Exactly. Uh, yeah. When I was doing research, when I was in college, my studies were, so I was doing GIS, which is basically mapping and creating these maps. So I guess I can do technology in some areas and then in other areas, just like absolutely not. So I can make these like <laughs> complex maps. <laughs> That will Super high-tech maps, how... but I can't fix your printer. <laughs> Got it. I can't do Zoom. But <laughs> I, my project was to make maps that basically showed access to green space. So green space to me was like a, a little bit larger than a park. So like a small park, even with like a little swing set. So I did. I tried to see if access to green spaces like parks and hiking trails was in any way correlated to the racial demographics of an area. And no surprise, it is. So I learned that a lot of black and brown communities don't have the same access to these amazing wild spaces or even just community gardens and parks to be able to relax and chill and thrive and explore in nature. And other than that, there's just so many things like also food deserts. That's something that's such a big deal globally and in the United States and even in communities that aren't too far from where I am in Carpinteria, where people don't have access to organic 
or even non-organic fruits and vegetables. And that's something that just blows my mind that there are people who aren't living within 30 to 50 miles, sometimes 100 miles of being able to access those foods. And that's also disproportionately linked with race and culture and also, um, you know, wealth and all that. But that's something. And then I usually go to clean air and clean water. That's one that's a little bit more obvious. But, yeah, there's so many things. Yeah, whether it's a, you know, refinery or drilling, you know, Los Angeles and Long Mm -hmm. Beach area, there's drilling projects right in the middle of, you know, communities of brown people. And um, yeah, there there, there are a number of issues. And, you know, that that's what we know here in the United States. And yet then you expand that out globally and you think about about the way Mm -hmm. that different nations sort of extract and abuse resources across international lines and, and how. Um, damaging that can be and you know the the reason this podcast is called there self pure one ocean is because we really try to hit home that message that we are all connected uh that we mm-hmm. you know uh we here myself sitting here in the u.s i am connected to um you know people across the world in terms of the carbon that i emit the plastic that i use the the way that i interact with the planet and then also the good that we can all do together when we when we do come together so um you know, we really try and hit that home and connect. And I do think that there is a connection between the, the global surf community. And I, I am, I am heartened by what I saw over the last couple of weeks with the paddle outs. Um, I, I know you mentioned one when we were chatting earlier about Ventura. Um, yeah. I thought, yeah, it's been, it's been really cool to see, you know, what black girls surf and what textured waves mm-hmm. crew and changing tides and all those groups did to get people rallied, um, to show up you know, and that's the first step is at least showing up. That's, you know, no one is done just, just so everyone knows if you went to a battle, you're not done. You just signed up for a lifelong learning of how to be better. Um, because surfing is really white. It's, it's been really white for a long time, even though it comes from Brown people historically, (laughs) Um, multiple (laughs) Polynesian communities and, um, Mm -hmm. surprise, surprise, uh, white people (laughs) took a thing and, um, did the, the, had their way with it for a long time. But, um, you know, we know, we know that it's a super white sport. And um, I guess that my question to you is, you know, what would you recommend to people who are in this space right now and are f- figuring out what they can do, um, you know, or how do, we, how do we solve that, you know? Um, I have some ideas, but I want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most beautiful things is when, so when I started working at Patagonia, I don't work there anymore, but I had, I'm just very connected with the community and, Everyone went surfing all the time. They go surfing before work, after work, during the lunch break. And I had no, I had never been surfing before. And I felt so intimidated because some people get so serious about like waves, understandably. But like, I just didn't know what was going on. Is it understandable? Is it understandable to be that serious about waves? Like, it's just (laughs) surfing. None of us are pros. None of us are getting paid. Mm -hmm. We're all really average. Everyone should just chill out. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Sorry. But I <laughs> I remember the first invitation, my friend Amanda, who's also just super rad. She's like an ex-professional um downhill skateboarder, so she's just cool. Um yeah. but she taught me how to surf. And she invited Amazing. me and it was beautiful. And we went to Mondo's. I don't know if you've been to Mondo's, but it's like a it. really basic, like beginner surf spot. And it just felt so good to have someone actually invite me out and show me in a way that wasn't judgmental. Because I've heard these these horror stories from people that are being taught how to surf and they might be black or brown and someone gets like angry with them because they don't have the arm strength yet to be able to actually like swim out and do the water. Um, so I think, yeah, inviting people to come out and also 
as a company. So a lot of companies that are surf oriented might start wondering like, oh, there's not enough black surfers. I guess people just aren't interested in surfing. And I just challenge the surf community to think beyond that and say, why? Look at the root cause because I was out there and I felt so free. I felt so great. And I didn't know that that was something that I actually needed in my soul and it felt so good and I want other people to have it. Um, But look at the root causes of over 60% of African-Americans not knowing how to swim. And that goes to generational trauma, specifically in the United States, slavery and being put in boats and being over a body of water and associating that historically with displacement and being stolen. That's really intense stuff. And I think looking at the root cause of it from segregation and people not having access to pools and all those things, looking at the root cause, funding projects to be able to teach people how to swim and surf from a young age so it's not this generational thing, I think that will help make it more accessible. So I think it's just really important to look at the root cause instead of looking at it from a marketing perspective as a company and just saying, oh, we need to get some photos of someone black in the water and maybe saying, how can we fund this work so we can actually change the demographics of the people who surf? Yeah, I think that's very well said, getting at the root cause of it for sure. Um, And I think also just a small takeaway is like, everyone just chill out and be more welcoming. Um, And that goes for (laughs) anyone. There's such a... um, a stigma against people who are learning and people getting in their way and stuff like that. And it doesn't matter what color you are. There's this kind of like just vibe and mm-hmm. hardcore locals and they don't want people in their waves and all this stuff. And it's like, can we just be nice and be welcoming, uh, you know, especially to people who don't look like you. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, I guess like, what is the harm in that? Yeah. <laughs> like there's no, there's no harm in that and being nice. I don't know. I've never regretted being nice to someone. Um, Mm-mm. So I, I don't know, I guess I, I kind of like one of the questions that one of my coworkers wanted me to ask and, and kind of tease this up is mm-hmm. like, what happens when more women and people of color get involved in climate and environmental work? And again, it kind of like going with the surfing thing. It's like, what's so bad if more diverse people become a part of surfing? That's not a bad thing. That's a great yeah. thing. We need more diversity. We need, mm-hmm. we need more different ideas. We need, you know, to understand, um, the, the, like surfing connects us, right? It's this thing. We travel to different mm-hmm. places and hear stories and like, why do we only want to connect with each other? Let's connect with other people too. Mm-hmm. And so what's wrong with bringing more people in? And, and then what is that positive? You know, when we create these intersectional movements, when we have more women and women of color in these positions, what is the outcome? Mm-hmm. I'm asking I think that's you. such a good question. <laughs> I, know, I was like, oh, yeah. Um, no, that's such a good question. I always like to say, like, why not? Especially when it's something as urgent as the climate crisis or maybe making a space safer for other people. Why not try? Because it hasn't been done before to a scale that I think is, you know, super significant. So why not? Because if we aren't making as much traction as we can to fight the climate crisis, Maybe we need to try something else and it, it wouldn't hurt. So that we shouldn't need everybody be the only we can. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, we need everyone. So that's usually where I start with the why not, because if you haven't tried something and you're already super critical, and especially if it's something where people's lives are endangered or the planet is endangered, it's not a time to pick and choose who. I, I just I just think it's important to try to tackle the climate crisis. But also, I think if you start including women and people of color and people from marginalized backgrounds like 
oh my god like i'm so excited for the world i'm so excited to finally have like more black professors and more black environmentalists and I'm super excited for my little cousins to come visit me in California and we go to the beach and they see a group of surfers and they'll see someone who looks like themselves and they'll say, hey, I want to I wanna surf. That's going to warm my heart so much or even certain sports and activities that have been kind of deemed to be like white activities. Like I'm so excited for the next generation to change that and just why why hold the joy of surfing or being outdoors for one group of people specifically when we already know the healing powers of being out in the water and just being out in nature why keep that just for yourself share it for other people so we can have another generation of people who are able to you know i think it's great for mental health as well to be able to heal and process and just be outside and explore I think it's so important for development, like childhood development, to be able to have access to these certain things to sure. instill confidence, you know, in themselves. So there's just so many pros. And the only cons that I can see is if someone might be like, eh, I don't want people that don't look like me out here. And that doesn't seem like a, a like a significant enough con to, no. to stop like the world from becoming a better place. It just seems very self, self-centered. Yes. Hundred <laughs> um, percent, and we don't like that. We're trying to make surfing less selfish. No, uh, it's already a selfish act mm-hmm. of pursuing waves for yourself. Um, so one of the things that has also been on trend in the last few weeks, although the book came out, I believe last year, is uh, you know how to be an anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And one of yeah. the um, you recently had an article in Vogue, actually, which was mm-hmm. uh, why. Let me see, what was the title again? It was uh why why every environmentalist should be anti-racist there we go um yeah (laughs) (laughs) i've got notes here i i didn't i didn't prep you on this but i have notes here so uh, (laughs) so why every environmentalist should be anti-racist and i want to just dip Mm -hmm. into that even quickly um because i think the concept from ibram x kendi is really important Mm -hmm. and um that's the type of stuff i think that if we if we take that lens of we need to be anti-racist. We environmentalists, right? Because let's assume yeah. people listening here are environmentalists that care about the ocean. Okay, we need to be anti-racist. Mm-hmm. That is what is going to help bring more people of color into the movement, which will help us win yeah. in the long run. And I don't mean to say it in that self-serving, only do it because you want more people to win. Do it because it's the right thing to do, first of all. Exactly. And we need to dismantle oppression, but um, it will be a net benefit to us all so maybe you could touch on anti-racism really quickly and and what that concept means yeah i was so moved by that concept and term because it made so much sense to me because a lot of people in environmental circles they're not self-identifying as racist or they're not necessarily overt racist people and i think maybe that could be like a big scary word um, for a lot of people But I think it's important to make that distinction because if environmentalists thus far have deemed themselves to be not racist, but all of these racist environmental policies exist, something is is not working. It's not working to just be not racist because being not racist has led to so much ecological damage and also so much environmental injustice that is actually killing people and hurting people. So it's not enough to just be not racist. And it's important to be anti-racist. So to be, um, sorry, my computer shut off a little bit. 
Hopefully you can still see me. Um, I still got you. <laughs> but it's important. Great. <laughs> okay. But it's important to be anti-racist because being anti-racist will stop those racist policies that disproportionately put people of color next to toxic waste sites and terrible areas of air and, and water pollution. Um, that will stop those policies from happening in the first place. And being anti-racist and fighting against racism um, in the environmental movement will help the environmental movement finally become inclusive. And if you're an anti-racist, I think it'll just make more sense. Like, yes, I want to amplify the voices of people of color or the voices of people that have been unheard. And I feel like that's like a big tenet of being anti-racist, like not really thinking too much, not being super selfish in that moment and realizing that there are people who are facing some very serious immediate environmental justice concerns and maybe allowing them to have space to talk and create change. And yeah, I think there's nuances between those terms, but it just a lot of not racist people have allowed very racist policies to happen. So I think anti-racism is the only way to stop that from happening. Yeah. And, and you know, I think the, the famous quote and I'll, I'm, I'll butcher it here but it was uh desmond tutu right and it's like silence is mm -hmm. the language of the oppressor or if yeah. you're if you're silent or neutral mm -hmm. you're essentially on the side of the oppressor um and that's exactly. what it is you know if you're if you're not speaking out for um the oppressed then you're you're advantaged and it's hard for people to reckon with that because no one likes to think like mm -hmm. oh i'm privileged or whatever it is and um there's a lot of work to be done to understand white fragility and anti-racism but um, it, it, it makes sense once you actually dig in and start trying to understand it and reflecting on what it's meant for your mm -hmm. life. It, it makes sense for me. So, um, we'll link to your article in the show notes, uh, as well as to the book, because I do think people should read it. Um, I want to, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I think, I feel like you have probably 10 more of these to do today. Uh, it seems everybody <laughs> wants to hear from you, which I'm is great. Good. Um, all the different, um, sporting communities, hiking, surfing, et cetera. Uh, but you did mention, mm -hmm. uh, or you said you, you're not a surfer, maybe not a hiker, or maybe not a climber, but what is your outdoor activity? Uh, and this is a tee up to my final question. Yeah. Um, what is your outdoor activity of choice? Or is it activism? Is that your, is that your thing? That's a great question. Cause yeah, I've dabbled in so many like outdoor things and I'm like, eh, no, that's not for me. Not for me. <laughs> um, but I mean, I do love going on hikes with my friends I just love being outside, even if I'm just sitting in the sunshine and reading like poetry. I love going to the beach. I love Carpinteria where I live. It's just so nice and such a sleepy beach town. I love, you know, having my feet in the sand and being at the beach, even if I just hop in, hop out and just am outside. So I think I just really enjoy being outside, doing yoga outside, reading outside, hiking outside. So you don't have to be a hardcore adventure uh athlete like alex honnold to be an environmentalist is what you're saying. you can you can just be a person That's, who likes yeah. being outside and enjoying clean air that exactly. seems reasonable that seems yeah reasonable. exactly okay so uh final question and um i'm stealing this from ace uh buckin who's one of our, our surfers on the championship tour and an ambassador for wsl pure um he asked this a while ago when he hosted a podcast and i'm going to bring this question back if you could take anyone in the world, usually we say if you could take anyone surfing because we have a lot of surfers on the show, but if you could take anyone in the world to go to the beach, put their feet in the sand, just enjoy the beach, whatever activity <laughs> it is you, you prefer, um, who would you take with you? Where would you go? And what would you talk about with, with the lens of this moment? Huh. Um, you know, who, who, who do you want to take any person in the world? 
can I be like dead or alive, or is this like someone who's like right now? I guess I could do There's alive. Not really any rules. You can do whatever you want. Usually, we, usually Ooh. we say alive. Usually we say alive because the theory is that maybe you're gonna kind of um, <sighs> learn from or influence some kind of thing. But okay. you do how you do you. I'll do me. Okay, I'll do someone who's alive. But I was gonna pick Malcolm X because I feel Ooh. like he's just very misunderstood. And I think a lot of people use Martin Luther King Jr.'s words as a way to almost gaslight people into thinking that activism needs to be done in one specific way, even though people actually didn't really approve of what MLK was doing either. But yeah, I would love to just hear from Malcolm X just a little bit more about what he was all about. Um, but other than that, it would be Oprah. And I just want to talk to her about regenerative agriculture. She's got a garden and that potentially being a solution for the climate crisis and how we could get more black farmers into this regenerative agriculture movement. So, yeah, I talked to her about that because I think farming can just be such a healing thing. And I, I think there's also a lot of wisdom within different cultural identities that can be explored through gardening and farming. So I would definitely talk, talk to Oprah. Oprah. All right. Well, you know, my boss, uh, knows Oprah. Um, she has called him in the middle of meetings I've had. He'd been like, hang on this one's it's Oprah. I got to go. And I'm like, cool. You take that call. I'll be right here. Um, so Eric, if you're listening, uh, um, we have, uh, we have a request to hang with Oprah sometime soon and see if we can speed up her regenerative farming practices. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see what we can do about that one. That's, this is the first time I've ever known the, the person that somebody else wants to hang with. So, or, that's have so a degree funny. of uh, connection to. Um, mm-hmm. Anything else you want to share with everyone while you're here? Um, we're we're going to link to intersectional environmentalists in, in the, uh, in, as well as your Instagram in the show notes and, and help share that. But anything else you want to share? No, this has been really lovely and I, I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. I mean, I appreciate you doing the work that you're doing. It's incredible leadership and, you know, putting yourself out there and, um, I'm glad mm-hmm. to see the momentum behind it. And I only hope that it continues as we say in as sailors say fair winds and following seas, you know, I hope the winds at your back and just, um, you know, keep this going. Cause we all have a lot of work to do. And, um, you know, I hope this is by no means, um, just a trend that, you know, a year from now that we're seeing progress and years and years from now it continues on. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Leah for joining us and for sharing her knowledge and experience. Um, we all have a lot of work to do here, and uh, we're confident that we'll all be better for it when we do. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So you know, dive into the work and get busy, but know that this is a journey that we're all going on to embrace intersectionality and make it a part of our everyday work in trying to protect the environment, fight for a cleaner climate, healthier climate, and uh, a better world. Um, so intersectional environmentalists, go check it out. We've got it linked in the show notes. There are a ton of great resources there. Follow on Instagram or wherever you prefer and, um, yeah, get busy. Also a sincere thank you for listening and a huge thanks to all those who are leaving really kind comments lately. We see you, we appreciate it. It really, um, you know, just is appreciated. So thank you. And, uh, thanks, especially Jessica Murphy. We saw you shouting us out on Twitter today. Thank you. And um, if you do like the show, please go give us a rating and or a review on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps the show grow. If you got ideas for shows, hit us up, oneocean at wcellpure.org. We'd love to hear from you. 
And um, until next week, I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're washing hands, wearing a mask, and doing all the right things and getting outside when and where you can. All right, next time. See you.